0: In our catechism this morning, it was brought to my attention that I am supposed to be up here and give a lively sermon. That's what that's what we all said together. So we are in agreement. We have to give a (laughs) live lively preaching here. So that is our 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 goal among others uh, this morning together. Uh, Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll continue working through our text that we've already been in for a couple of weeks. 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 10. Why don't we start at 10? We'll read through 13. Please follow along as I read. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be "...in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells." So our focus, of course, again, for the third Lord's Day is on verse 13. A new heavens and new earth. So what an occasion for lively preaching. What can be more lively and exciting than talk about talking about new things, especially a new heaven and new earth? We rarely get as excited about things or things in life as when they are new. I mean, we're excited about new cars, right? New tools, power tools, especially. You know, yeah, there you go. I get an man. I see that hand. You know, maybe a new house, and once and only once, a new spouse, right? Only once though. For life but we love new. We love getting new, and we love talking about new. We love thinking about new. And so that is what's going to happen this morning. We're going to talk again about the new heavens and new earth. And again, once, since this is the first time I've I really covered this subject, we are going to, to take our time. So last couple of weeks, we have covered what we could call as a, a biblical theology of this teaching of the new heavens and new earth. And of course, there, there is a lot that we left out. And I think in the, in the ensuing Sundays, we can fill in some of those blanks. But what we wanted to do at the least was provide a bird's eye view throughout the totality of Scripture and see how the Bible develops this teaching. And so in light of that, we actually focused on what Peter calls the promise of the new heavens and new earth. So according, right? According to that promise. So we, we survey the landscape of Scripture. And ask ourselves, where is this promise located? And we find it's, it's all over scripture and it begins even as far back as Genesis chapter three. So there is a promise, even after Adam and Eve fall into sin and death, a promise is made to them and is fulfilled ultimately in the coming of Jesus that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Effectively, Jesus would slay the dragon. That is key to understanding this. So where Adam first failed, the first Adam failed. Christ, who is called the last Adam, the true and faithful image bearer of God, succeeded and therefore reversed the curse on man and creation, thus ushering in through his resurrection a new heaven and new earth where God and man dwell together once again, but this time never again to be Parted. So even though we have all been born in Adam, for all die, we are now in Christ by faith, being conformed to His image. So we understand that. That's basically the story of Scripture. We understand that man, Christians, who are regenerated, who have believed the gospel, now we are able to, in Christ, as we are empowered by His Holy Spirit, to now fulfill the purpose for which God originally created man. See, now under the reign of God, we still fill the earth, we subdue it, we, we put our hands to work, so that through this work of raising offspring, and then in every station of life, we commit ourselves to advancing the dominion of Jesus Christ in every corner of the world so that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. So we've just te- we've just basically told the story, the, re- the entire redemption story of Scripture. We've talked about the beginning, where man is created to fulfill a certain purpose, his fall, and then redemption, and then consummation. Where the earth is full of the glory of the Lord. Where the entire earth is a garden temple where man lives in fellowship with his God, loves and serves Him and enjoys his presence. That's living if you ask me. So, no doubt, a lot of things uh, a lot of things have been happening this week. A lot of events, think most significantly, unless you've been living under a rock, you've no doubt heard about the Roe v. Wade verdict. Infanticide, it would seem, is no longer viewed as a constitutional right. It's pretty amazing that, you know, we think, we think about this. This is very providential. And certainly, as we've been told already, it's only the beginning. We stand up, we keep fighting, right? We keep advancing the cause of righteousness. That's why we bring up this very thing. In striking down Roe v. Wade, something righteous has happened. And righteousness plays a major theme in our message today. Righteousness that we are looking for. And so, no doubt, we praise God for this and understand that we still are to advance the cause of righteous things. It's amazing the reaction we see to these things too, whether by Christians or non-Christians. And we understand that when the world, any part of the world rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they have a completely different viewpoint on what constitutes righteousness. That's why it's so key that we understand it, especially within the purview of of the new heavens and new earth. But, they, but the reaction—it it, 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 it is tantamount to a great cry in Egypt, as if their firstborn, ironically enough, were struck dead. There are cries of having freedom taken away, having privacy taken away, but this, is somehow, this somehow points to this dystopian future where we can no longer make choices for ourselves. And so the response, among many, should be this. Well, what's more dystopian? Not being able to murder your child or having your employer now give you $4,000 to kill your child so that you can be a more productive worker. What sounds more dystopian to you? And so in light of all this, we can understand in a very real way the text before us this morning. Righteousness occurred this week, and we celebrate righteousness. We praise God for righteousness, and as Peter would say here, we look for righteousness. So with thankful hearts, we can come to the text this morning. So today, I want to focus less on a biblical theology and primarily on what Peter says, just his words in verse 13. So while we've talked about the development of the new heavens and new earth, now we can concentrate on what Peter says specifically, right? So there's tons of... Tons of good stuff here in this text for us. And I think following this, depending on how far we get through today, we'll we'll go on to to answering some of the more difficult questions about heaven and earth. Because this is a a topic on which Christians divide quite often, and so we can uh, attack the finer points at a later time. But let's move through the text today. So Peter says, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this new heavens and new earth is, is characterized primarily not just by newness, but by righteousness. If it's new, it's righteous. Even if it's righteous, it's new. Now understand the context to which Peter is speaking. We remind ourselves that judgment is coming on unbelief. Peter is expecting it, and he's communicating that very clearly to the churches. So while judgment is coming on unbelief, this is not the end for the Christian. The Christian, rather, has a future of hope and not despair. His hope is in the new heavens and new earth. So unbelievers only doubt the word of God, but then despair it when it comes true. So just as Noah's world was judged by the flood waters, giving way to the present order to which Peter is writing, so also that present world will give way to a new creation. Now, if you were at Men's Study this past week, we, we, we had a couple of graphs drawn on the, drawn on the, uh, the paper and one of them, was, which the view I take, is that the new heavens and new earth will be progressive. It will be gradually manifested throughout this redemptive age. And then, of course, and we don't know all the details, but we do know, because the Word of God says so, that it will come to full fruition. There will be a consummation in which heaven and earth are fully one. And so when Peter is writing this, there is an expectation even 2,000 years ago to these churches, that they are to be looking for a new heavens and new earth, that it will manifest itself as Christ reveals His own glory, even in judgment, that this present world that they're living in would give way to a new creation. And so Peter says, we are looking for this. Looking for this because it's about to manifest itself. So for for Peter to say that in his first letter that the 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 end of all things is near to say that the coming of the Lord Jesus and judgment was upon them, happening soon. We would ask, would the Lord leave a vacuum where He destroyed? Or would He put in its place something good? Or we say something righteous, making His kingdom and goodness manifest. So we look. We continue to look. Peter's audience looks because there is this expectation of newness based on The promises made from Genesis 3 and Isaiah 65 and 66. It's all over the text. But I think one thing, one way we have an advantage that this is especially true for today because as the new covenant church, we can look back over 2,000 years of God's saving work in Christ and see how profoundly this has grown. We're also reminded that looking is not just gazing. It's not just viewing. We are active participants in this newness. And so this text has direct application for us today. So what does looking entail? What is looking for right the righteousness of a new heaven and new earth entail? Let me break some of this down. Some are going to be longer than others, but I think they're really good for us to consider because there are particular attitudes. There's a particular disposition of the church corporately and uh, and Christians individually as it regards the new heavens and new earth. But here's the first one. Looking means loving. Looking means loving. The Christian, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, has an inherent love of all things right, all things righteous. He loves righteousness. He loves that character of God that brings forth righteousness. That is the very standard of all that is good and lovely. We treasure that. It is a very precious thing to us. We love God because He is righteous altogether. Righteous in all of His attributes. Righteous in His character. Completely righteous. There's a moral, an eternal moral quality to God when we understand Him as righteous. We don't back away from it. We don't shy away from it, but we cherish it instead. We, so, looking is loving. It's loving the thought that righteousness will manifest itself in the new heaven and new earth. Secondly, and along with loving is longing. So looking means longing. It is that we desire righteousness to be made manifest. Again, there is something about the righteousness of God that pricks the heart of every Christian. We respond to it, not only with our minds, but with the inner man. We we long for this righteousness to present itself. I think that's made clear in Romans 8, where Paul talks about all of creation groaning. Groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself is, is groaning. It longs for something. And I think in part of this longing is that things would be made right. That God would reveal His righteousness to everyone. We know we need it. We know others need it. We want it to be welcomed into our lives, our homes, our societies, our church, everywhere. We want righteousness to be present and to be constant and to see its power at work here's another thing longer explanation but looking is also knowing peter talks a lot about growing in knowledge and so we have it here to look for the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells is to know that god is bringing the new creation to bear yes some christians are unaware of this They take the new creation and cast it into the far-flung distant future and it doesn't really have a lot to do with us outside of making sure we're saved before we die. But we have a deeper knowledge of this, that God has already brought it to bear in Christ and has been since Christ rose from the dead in power and authority. So looking for righteousness is not at all saying to turn a blind eye to all of the sin and madness going on in this world. It's not a triumphant naivete. But it's a knowledge that God is doing a good thing here and now. And working all things to His good and righteous purposes. And this is a timely encouragement because there are, I mean, I think we feel it often, where we can become so preoccupied with all the evil that is going on in the world that we fail to see or acknowledge those times where good overcomes evil. And I'm glad that we have something so clearly now, historically, last week, that we can say, praise the Lord, in this, in this instance, good has overcome evil. But sometimes I think we don't think that there is going to be an advancement of that righteousness because evil seems so pervasive and so celebrated. I think we view the world much like Middle-earth. If you've ever read The Lord of the Rings, you may have picked up this very strong... Some of you are smiling at me. Knock it off. <laughs> one of the themes that sometimes we miss, but I've been reading it to my son, one thing that really stands out is the theme of gray. You'll notice how everything is gray. Many of the soldiers are clad in gray. You have Gandalf the gray. Even his name, Mithrandir, means the gray wanderer. There's so much gray. If you want to sail off to Valinor, guess where you go? The gray havens. Even Gondor means land of stone. Stone is gray. It's all, it's all gray. It's like we're, we're stuck somewhere in the middle, right? And yet our attention is turned toward Mordor, the black land. Very, very, very dark gray. And it turns up in a lot of places. And when, and when you see color, It's mostly in pocketed places, and it's rather remarkable. One of the earliest places where there is color vividly represented is when the hobbits encounter old Tom Bombadil. And as we know, old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket is, and his boots are yellow. And he lives in the old forest, the Withy window. This is profound because it mentions that, wow, he is wearing bright colors, so his character stands out against the gray of the story. But there's not a lot of color in the narrative. But the point of mentioning this is that this is how we often see the world. It's gray. We're just enduring, but we're not seeing a lot of color. We're not seeing a lot of life, a lot of vividness. Again, there's the black land of Mordor to the east, there's the green land of the Shire to the west, and we can't forget Lothlorien, but it's it's hidden away. Rivendell is also hidden away. These magical places, but we don't see it a lot. We become a very gray, unmagical people. But sometimes we do that in ignorance, and we refuse to see the color, we refuse to see the brightness, we refuse to see the light beyond the gray that the Lord brings forth in the power of the gospel. We don't have merely little hope for color and brightness. We have great hope because of what the Lord is doing now. He's making all things new. He is making all things bright, and the church should be thankful and joyous and anticipate that making of all things bright. Thus ends my Lord of the Rings illustration. So looking is knowing. That is to say, we know from Scripture that the Lord is going to Make this world new and brighten it. Next, looking is discerning. That is discerning between righteousness and what masquerades as righteousness. Sure, we're looking for righteousness, but we want to make sure we're seeing the right one. The biblical one. The godly righteousness. The true righteousness. We are looking for a new heavens and new earth. Advanced by the good news of Jesus Christ. But we have to acknowledge that as long as the gospel has been the gospel, and even Peter attests to it, there are, there are false teachers. There is false teaching. There are those who lead Christians astray from the purity of the truth. And these people, these even modern day false prophets, are looking. they're also looking for a new heavens and new earth. We have to get that in our heads. We have to understand that. We are looking for a new heavens and new earth. We're just looking for the real one. But the spiritual opposition is also looking for a new heaven and new earth. We've talked a lot about Marxist utopia. Right? They are searching for their own paradise, their own newness. And they consider the order of righteousness, God's people, the enemy. They, want to, they are looking for something that is counter to it, that is hostile to it. And yet, masquerades as the real thing a perversion of what Scripture says is or characterizes the new heaven and new earth. And I say it's a blessing that even today, it seems like this, this chasm is widening. I think we're able to see with greater clarity today, those who are for Christ and those who are, who are not, we are seeing those differences. Just let people talk and I think we can understand very clearly what they believe. But we are believing the promises of God. And so those who are looking for a counterfeit new heavens and new earth also proclaim promises. But think about the ways this comes about. I mean, think about one of the things that, the very thing that underlies and characterizes the new heavens and new earth. Righteousness and justice. Justice. The Bible promises that Christ, the Messiah, will bring justice to the nations, we read that in Isaiah 9-7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and listen to this, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Consider also Isaiah eleven four through 5 But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. There's a lot of righteousness occurring in that text. Righteousness and justice walk hand in hand. And in both Hebrew and Greek, they share the same root. We're looking for those things. But consider this, how much progressives today, let's just call them that generically, are all about justice. You hear how much they constantly are preaching about justice. It's one of their favorite talking points. And we know just by what we've read that God will judge the nations with equity also. Equity is a big talking point as well. But when they, they say the same word, but they mean different things, that's why we have to be discerning and ask ourselves when, when more leftist pundits, when progressive pundits use or hijack, I would say, a word that is precious to the church, the first thing we have to think of is this. Are they using it or preaching it because everyone's preaching the same way that the Bible reveals it? And the majority of the time, no is the answer. They're saying the same thing, but they mean something differently. And so they do it concerning many things. They do the same thing with truth, right? Just living out my truth, speaking truth to power, right? Just doing my thing. Freedom, you know, again, freedom to murder your child if it's an inconvenience. And love, been down that road many times. The same thing, but different. And these, these things are also very hostile to each other. Biblical love is hostile to unbelieving love. Biblical truth is hostile to unbelieving progressive truth. And that's the problem with progressivism today, with the opposition. It's not the newness or the righteousness that the Bible envisions. What we are hearing preached daily from those who are hostile to God and to the purposes of the gospel envision a really a sexless, godless, aimless, purposeless, and therefore hopeless future. And one of the reasons we preach the Gospel is to warn people against that kind of future without any kind of purpose whatsoever. We go back to this Roe v. Wade decision. It put righteousness on display. Righteousness was accomplished. And yet, what does the other side see? Only oppression, right? Only oppression and enslavement. When we would say, oh no, that's that's a, that's a road toward freedom. And what comports with God's will And his word but think about how we view something like that right the constitution does not guarantee the right or endorse the right to murder your child even if that child is in the womb well listen to what alexandra ocasio cortez said this week and you'll see the different way they interpret it now brace yourselves because this is profound we were born in this moment for a reason We are here for a reason. We were born in this place and in this time for a reason. So you see that? When you kind of weave your way through that word salad, she sees this as an opportunity for their cause, even though something didn't go her way. And we would interpret it as something righteous being accomplished. And so I think even statements like that Are a warning, but also an encouragement to the church to not rest on the laurels of victory, but to keep on persevering and proclaiming the righteousness of God. So here's another thing. Looking is pursuing. That is, when we pursue righteousness, that is, we're always seeking to grow even as we enjoy the benefits of the new heavens and new earth. So we're always proclaiming the righteousness of God in every social strata. We've been talking about that a lot that God's righteousness and its revelation is not confined to the institution of the church. We desire, as God's people, that God's righteousness be made manifest everywhere. See, we are members of the kingdom of God, and it is the kingdom of God that facilitates the new heavens and new earth, where righteousness dwells. And so this kingdom, this newness, is not merely confined to the church, but is made manifest, and to be made manifest, wherever Christ is honored as Lord and Savior. And we would say, amen, because Christ deserves it because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. What follows then is that the church proclaims that Christ deserves to be honored as having all of that authority and not just in the church. It's amazing that, you know, even the church in Peter's time and our own time, the, the privilege we have as the church Look in the the New Testament. This newness, right? This heavenly city that Scripture so eloquently describes is the very thing that Abraham saw from afar off. He was looking for it. Consider Hebrews eleven sixteen, talking about great uh, men and women of the faith. It says all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Did they? No. But as it is, verse 16, finally there, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God as He has prepared a city for them. So Peter here anticipates the, the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth. And what does Revelation describe, right? This, this city coming down, seeing the new heavens and new earth. And what does John say? He will be their God, and they will be his people. And God is not ashamed to be called their God. So what, what Abraham was looking forward to, looking desiring this better. Heavenly country. Now, as Peter writes, it is upon them. See, Abraham was only longing, and the, the, the language here is very clear. When it says Abraham was longing, it literally means he was stretching toward, almost like you're a- agonizing. You're trying to, you're trying to get that cookie at the top shelf. You're reaching, you're straining, and there's pain involved. And yet you can't quite, you know it's there, you rejoice that it's there, but you can't quite grasp it. And so with Peter's audience, there's, there's, not, there's not grasping, there's not a stretching towards, there is, there is an expectation. This looking is expectation, it is anticipation, because its inauguration is at hand. So the new heavens and new earth are close to coming upon Peter's people. And then from there, as the gospel is proclaimed throughout all the nations, this reality of the new creation extends and expands. So there we are. So that is according to His promise. We're looking carefully for a new heavens and new earth. And then going on, Peter says, in which righteousness dwells. So there is the characteristic which most aptly and completely describes this newness. It's not only new, but it is righteous. It is where righteousness dwells. A welcome fulfillment of what the prophets foretold concerning the work and reign of the Messiah. So we've already read Isaiah 9:7 and Isaiah 11:4 through 5, but consider Isaiah 32:16 and 17. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. So there's righteousness everywhere you look. And let's be honest here. We don't look everywhere and notice right off the bat righteousness. It seems like an unwelcome guest. It's a visitor, an interloper, even a traitor. Sometimes it worst, public enemy number one. Sometimes we struggle to see righteousness. Oh, it's there. But we wouldn't look at this as the way things are today and say, oh yeah, we just see righteousness prevailing everywhere. Right? We're a place and a time where righteousness is the rule and not the exception. So at the consummation, when the work of newness has been done, righteousness will be the rule. But I think in Peter's context, where is righteousness dwelling primarily? Where is righteousness dwelling? It's dwelling in the where the people of God are. We could say that the church, the people of God, and again, anywhere that Christ is honored, that is a place where righteousness dwells, where righteousness is the rule, where righteousness has basically made a home. We contrast that with what is described as the wicked in the book of Revelation. Describes the wicked as those who dwell on the face of the earth. That is, those who make the old heavens and the earth their home, who cling to its empty promises, who cling to death as it were, as opposed to those who dwell in a new heavens and new earth where righteousness is the rule and not the exception. Where righteousness is the primary characteristic of that environment. And of course, we see it grow—not merely traces, but that it is a welcome guest. And you talk about where you dwell. You dwell in a house, right? Where, well, when the house becomes a home, what is what's the difference? The, you buy the house, but you furnish the home. You bring in your your furniture, your appliances, you know, your your, your artwork. You may put some crown molding and wainscoting, and you make it your own, right? so that it's where you dwell. And in the same sense, the new heavens and new earth is where righteousness dwells and that the new heavens and new earth is fully furnished, fully ready for righteousness to be the main guest. And so as believers, we dwell there. That is, and we'll get into this later on, but that is the new Jerusalem of which we are a part. The new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Just as God has promised. So how can Peter say this? How are we to understand this righteousness? Well, first and foremost, this is the most important thing. The most clear answer is because God dwells there. We know the righteousness of God. We know he is infinitely unimaginably righteous. Righteousness dwells in this new place because God is there. And if you want to be there where God is, you must also be righteous. See, this is where the gospel comes in. It's because we are born unrighteous. And we need righteousness. A righteousness not of our own, as Paul describes. See, to to take part in this new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, we must also be among the righteous. Well, how does that happen? Well, I think Paul states this very clearly. Though we are born unrighteous in Adam, and we cannot earn righteous status before God, we attain a righteousness which is by faith. A righteousness not of our own. It is being imputed or reckoned to our account the righteousness of Christ. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And so when we trust in Him, God reckons us as righteous as His Son. As if we had lived Christ's perfect life. It is Romans 4 or 5 which says, To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, that is, declares righteous. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. So this is a, this is justification. Right? A once for all, instantaneous, unrepeatable, irrevocable decree by a merciful saving God upon an unworthy Christian that He now is righteous. And now we can be citizens of this new heaven and new earth dressed in the robes of righteousness, dressed in the robes of salvation by a righteous God who saves by His grace and through faith in His Son. We read this in Revelation 22, once again describing the new heavens and new earth. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. But not so for the unbeliever. In verse 15 we read this, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. But inside are God's righteous people where Christ is making all things new. Inside and out. So we say, well, God had a people once. They were Israel and look what happened to them. They certainly weren't very good at being righteous, were they? Well, look at the provisions we have. Never underestimate the promises of God, my friends. In Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. See, we know that. They broke it. They broke it badly. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Okay, so here's our answer. How do we know that we're secure? How do we know that we're not going to fall from orbit and be obliterated upon impact just like Adam and Israel were? Here's the answer. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. New covenant. Right. That's why all things are being made new. For the new heavens and new earth, there is also a new covenant. This is a a shared realization of for God's people. But what does it say here? Just like it said in, in in the announcement of the new heavens and new earth, the same thing is declared: I will be my I will be their God; they shall be my people. And it says so in Revelation as well: I will be their God; they will be my people. Same thing. New covenant, new creation. Same God, same people. This is a righteous people to whom the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed. We are credited with His righteousness. So let's read this a little more. A couple texts here that are helpful. Consider Isaiah 45.8. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up, before the nations. So the, text, the context here is a glorified Zion. We've talked about Zion no longer being confined to Jerusalem. We are looking for a Zion that fills the earth. A mountain that fills the earth. And so, and so there the earth brings forth its sprouts. And as the gospel is preached, righteousness and praise will spring up before all the nations. Not only Israel, but all the nations. In Isaiah 60, 21, we read this, then all your people will be righteous. How about a statement like that? All of God's people under the new covenant and in the new heavens and new earth will be righteous, period. We will not be characterized by unrighteousness or unbelief or all that is part of the old creation. We are righteous. And we will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Amazing, amazing these promises. So, we understand that this is not confined to some age in the future, right? Everything we've talked about is, 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 is going on here and now. It's growing, right? it's spreading, it's infiltrating, it's being defended, and it's being advanced. And the church, the people of God, us, are currently fighting for this. We are standing up for it. So let me break down a few more things. I know there's kind of two sermons here, but it looks like we have some time. But I'll, I'll get through these. Because when we're talking about where righteousness dwells, what do we see? What are some other characteristics we see about this? And it all goes back to God because God is the righteous one. But in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, here's the first one to write down. God's image will be cherished. I think that is something that, that will be Will be glorious in its realization. Because that is one of the primary moral battles the church faces right now, even though in many churches we're sick and tired of hearing it. Why do we keep hearing about abortion? Why do we keep talking about this? Right? And one and 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 I and I and, and it's it's hard to answer sometimes. And the first thing I want to say is, is really we're murdering our offspring, we're murdering our progeny? We're, we're, we're basically completely sacking this entire command to, to fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion, so that God will be glorified in his image bearers. Like, we actually have to make an argument about that to other believers. But I think one thing that we are looking forward to in a new heaven and new earth as the gospel continues to advance and conquer is that God's image will be cherished. We will, not only will we cherish Christ above all as the ultimate image bearer, but I'm simply saying, that we will cherish one another. We will truly love one another. We will truly defend life. And we will come to the point where we won't view any human being, no matter the age, whether in womb or out, and uphold justice, uphold righteousness, when those lives are being dragged away to death. God takes this very seriously, and He has from the beginning of creation. If you shed man's blood... By man shall your blood be shed. Why? Because man is the image bearer of God, and he takes that seriously. So murder, on any level, at any age, is an affront to God's zeal for his glory when it comes to us bearing his image faithfully. He wants us to bear his image. So when you kill anyone, you are preventing someone from giving God glory by bearing his image. This is, it's time we took this seriously. And, and, and last week's events, I think, are a reminder of that. That there are, think, think about this guys, whether truly Christian or not, flesh and blood did not reveal to those justices the righteousness of their cause. That is something that is only learned through revelation about the importance of, of upholding life. We only understand that life is precious because God has declared it precious. And so I think when this, as this newness progresses, bearing God's image faithfully will be fundamental. It will be very, very important. And that includes the unborn. Secondly, God's people will be satisfied in spite of the fact that we have so much distracting our attention from the most important things. One of the provisions of the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells is that God's people are satisfied in Him. And of course, we are made in His image to be satisfied in Him. Pop over really quickly to Isaiah 65. Passage on the new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 65. Just before He says, I create a new heavens and new earth, He says, in verse 13, Behold, My servants will eat but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice. My servants will shout joyfully. And then he says, but you will cry out with a heavy heart. But we will be satisfied. That is the depiction of God's people in the new heavens and new earth. We will be satisfied in Him. In Revelation 21.6, we read something similar, and these texts are all linked. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And yes, many of us today struggle with being satisfied in, in Christ. We are prone to melancholy. We are prone to be sad and sometimes inconsolable. But we do have these promises of God to hold close to our heart, that He does promise to satisfy us, that He will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Think, surely that can't be free. But Christ paid for it. In His death and resurrection, we are able to attain all of the benefits, all of the blessings that God freely gives. It is without cost to us. And how precious it should be because it was of cost to Christ. We also read in Revelation 22 about the river of the water of life, clear as crystal. We read about the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations, no longer any curse. Everything that God provides in the new heaven and new earth is for His people. He even provides light. There is no longer any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. See, we're going to be totally satisfied in Christ and we're going to see where we're going so we can enjoy it. We're not going to be stumbling around like we do here. Here's another one. Not only is God's image cherished and God's people satisfied, but God's enemies will be destroyed. He is. He does promise us to put all enemies under his feet. God's enemies are left outside of this new heavens and new earth. In Revelation 21:8 we read, "But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death." Need we say more? God's enemies will meet a just a just and destructive end. Here's another one, and I think we can get behind this in the here and now, is that God's word will be followed. Imagine that. Yes, we see God's word hated and ignored and rejected and rebelled against on a daily basis, but as the new heavens and new earth come to bear, God's word will be followed. God's people will love and obey the king. If we love him, we will keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We all know that. We will not indulge in the idol's of today or in our past, or kowtow to the spirit of the age. I think that one's very important. It's to kind of this sort of roll rollover and die mentality. Oh, the spirit of the age. I want to be well-liked. I want to be accepted. I better go along to get along. No, there's none of that. Where God's word is cherished, His word is obeyed in spite of opposition. If all the world says it's wrong, if God's word says it's right and true, we follow that. We would rather seek His honor in every realm of creation. And I can take this time to say this here. When it comes to following God's Word, a very immediate application of this means that you are raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. A consistent endeavor. When you rise up, when you lay down, when you are walking by the way, and we've, we've made this admonishment before, if you are turning your kids over to Caesar, That is of the old creation. It is your responsibility and obedience to God's Word to pass God's Word along to your kid. That you are their primary educators. That you raise them to know and love and trust Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, hours and hours a day in public education is going to be a detriment to that mission and calling. If there is one place where we have a ton of freedom now, in American society, it is to raise our kids. It is to teach our kids. That is all. Here's another one. God's Son will be honored. Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son lest ye perish in the way. Right? In Revelation 22.3 we read this, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb, that is the Son, will be in it and His bondservants will serve Him. See, we belong to Christ. We honor Him. We serve Him with a glad heart. Eager to see the fruit of that work. Eager to receive His blessings. Eager to receive His strength. And to disciple others in service to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are His bondservants. We were bought with a price and so we serve Him. And we honor Him in every aspect of our lives. Not just in the church. We talk about this a lot. But at work. In your family in your marriage, especially men, in loving your wife. You do so because it honors Christ. Without exception, every, every social strata, we seek the honor of Christ. And here's the final one, and perhaps the most important, is that in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, God's glory will be revealed. Of course, we know that God's glory, His presence, His desire to dwell with man has been a reality throughout redemptive history. Then, of course, Jesus Christ came, God's glory in the flesh, veiled in flesh, revealed to us, saving us. And yet we see, even on a greater cosmic level, God's glory will be revealed. We see it in Christ. Now we see it today as the gospel goes forth in his people. In Isaiah 45, we read this. This foretells this momentous event then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. So we see it in Christ and as the gospel advances, we see it in an even greater way as His people come to partake and benefit of that glory. And so there we come full circle, full consummation of the new heavens and new earth. As Habakkuk says, we read read this text a lot, but it's one of the key texts to this is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And so the question today in in landing our plane here is that with knowing all of these things, knowing all of these graces, knowing all of these benefits, how is God using you to advance this righteousness? How is God using you to promote and proclaim this newness that Peter so clearly describes? Say, look for those opportunities. Ask the Lord for wisdom to discern where those opportunities are. We have such a great, great calling and great occasion to proclaim Christ, to make to make His name known. I think we, I think even with Roe v. Wade, we have some momentum. Yes, there will be opposition. There will be anger. There will be some rioting, probably, but that should not deter us in the least. Though that is simply the nation's raging. That is that is the gasp of death from a defeated enemy which Christ has promised to put under His feet. So no matter how little it seems that the kingdom of God is advancing, no matter how indiscernibly righteousness is revealed at any time and place, what we do know and what we pray for is that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the new heaven and earth fully manifest and that is what we continue to To fight for today. So let us renew our commitment to one another and to the Lord as He strengthens us to proclaim the righteousness of God and see all made new. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time in your word Uh, to get through even one verse this morning, but to even unpack it, to see the marvel of your righteousness, to know that we serve a righteous God but a righteous God who loves his people and, and provides a way, makes provision for us to be righteous as well. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for reckoning us as righteous, though we were filthy, though we were sinful, though we were unworthy. We, we have a worthy Savior. And we, as we cling to him by faith, we are worthy as well. And so give us hearts of praise this morning as we continue to worship you. Lord, we, as much as we seek a righteous new heavens and new earth, we do want to, rather than being hypocrites, to truly walk righteously. You've made every provision. You've given us of Your Spirit. and Please give us courage or to walk faithfully. Um, we have the ultimate example in Christ who is faithful to You, faithful always, even to death on a cross but that death gives us new life. So help us to walk in newness of that life. Help us to encourage one another. We know that in these times it can be easy to get discouraged, especially when we see wickedness abound, but we are reminded, if we look for it, we are reminded in many ways that righteousness is doing its work. That newness is springing forth. And that you are making for yourself a righteous people who will love and serve you. And may we also love and serve one another. We pray also, Lord, as we are together today, we pray for those who are out today, especially due to sickness. We know many are struggling. We ask for for your your healing hand on them to, uh, to give them health and strength that they can be with us again. And all these things we ask by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.